All right, praise the Lord. Happy Father's Day, everybody. Uh, on this Father's Day message, I was working on a message, and a few days ago, I, a certain part of my message just kind of came alive, and I you know, prayed about it, thought about it, and I thought, I'm just going to preach on one specific text. We'll jump around a little bit as far as references go. Um, I'll mention other verses and so forth, but I want to look at a, a, several verses in a particular chapter, and I want to say happy Father's Day to all of you fathers out there, and I want to also encourage you, whether you're a father or you're not, there's going to be a lot here for each and every one of us as to what it means to know the Lord and who our Heavenly Father is and how, what it means to be like Him. So if you could turn your Bibles to the story of the prodigal, the prodigal, what's the prodigal what? No, the prodigal father. That's who we're going to learn about today. Turn to Luke 15. I really believe uh, you can call it, prodigal son's a good title for uh, the parable, but I believe it's more about the father than the son. And it's also about the prodigal father, not in the sense of a lost sense of the word prodigal, because the word prodigal means to, you know, just, it can be used in a negative sense to just, you know, lavishly waste things, uh, but also it can be used in a positive sense to lavishly bless others and give. And that's why I love this message to be titled, and I want to title it The Prodigal Father, because I want to focus more on the father. Usually when people give this message, they focus on the lost son. And they fail to realize it's really as much or more about the father, who's a very lavish father, our father in heaven. And it's also much about the older brother, so 95% of the time or more when people preach this, they really focus on that lost son. And because it's Father's Day, I want to spend a lot of attention, although we'll look at all three. Uh, you could call it the prodigal father and the two lost sons. I'm into long titles as, you know, the guys that write my titles down. If you look at my videos and stuff and through the years, I like longer titles that are more expressive. I remember I've read, I, read, I like to read and uh, I've got some books, man, that in the, in the 1800s and so forth, the titles were like paragraph long sometimes. It's kind of funny, you know. But uh, you could, uh, we're just going to call this on the tape, The Prodigal Father. But you could call it, the, for taking notes, The Prodigal Father and the Two Lost Sons. Because both sons were lost. And you'll see that in the, in the parable. And it's really, really powerful when you look at this. And we get a picture of our Father in Heaven's heart. And we get a picture of uh, what He's called us to be as fathers. And... It's really, really powerful. So Luke chapter 15, verses 11 and 12 is the beginning of this parable. Or I should say, in a way, it's not the beginning of the parable. But in a way, it's the beginning of a story in a parable. You'll see what I mean in a minute. And he said, that is Jesus, a man had two sons. So right in the breath of just the first part, just verse 11 there. And he said, a man had two sons. You have in the breath of just a few words, the father and his two sons. But if you just started right there and you just read, you would miss the teaching, very likely, of what Jesus is saying here. If you miss the context of what's going on in the background. So it's important. We say often, context is king. Amen? If you don't have the context, we always say, when you're studying scripture, make sure, if you don't understand something, or make sure you read before and after what you're studying so you understand the context of which you know, uh, that what you're reading, you know. Some people could come to wrong conclusion. Pray, God, show me what your will is. I'm just gonna open the Bible. Judas hung himself. Whoa. Okay, show me more. Do thou likewise. Does that mean I go hang myself? No, that's totally taking the Bible out of context. Amen? So context is king, and you can't appreciate the scripture unless you understand the context in which it's written. And when you have a historical background, you understand the culture and what's going on in the background, that helps even more. So look at Luke chapter 15, the first couple verses to understand what's going on here, why he's giving these stories. And Jesus is just so amazing, I mean, because he's in this context, and boom, he just tells these stories. And they're so well thought out, you're just like, what in the world? And you read in verse 1, because he's God in the flesh, amen, best teacher ever by far. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Now, the tax collectors, who are they? They're the wickedest people in the Roman Empire from the standpoint of many Jewish people because they're sellouts, okay? They're, they're Jews 
who since the Romans are now ruling Israel, and they have been for quite some time now, they want to get the tax money from the Jews. And guess who knows where the, who, where the money's at and who has what? The people embedded in the community, other Jews. So they would hire Jewish, Jewish people to be the IRS for them. And so guess what? You know, let's say, you know, the government, the IRS wanted to get extra money out of Blessed Hope Chapel. You said, hey, I'll do it, you know. I know so who got a new car and I knew, you know. All of a sudden you might, you know, have a little problem with your rep, you know. You start ratting people out and stuff. Not that there's anybody to be ratted out here. You know, I'm sure you're all absolutely perfect with your taxes. Hopefully you do a good job, you know. Uh, but they had bad reputations. They were, a lot of them were thieves. A lot of them would take extra money. And remember Zacchaeus, the little tax guy up in the tree? Remember that guy? Climbed the tree so he could see Jesus, and Jesus invited invite himself over to Zacchaeus' house that night. I'm eating at your house tonight. I love Jesus, you know. He made the universe so he can invite himself over. It's really his house, you know. And Zacchaeus repents, and he says, whatever I've taken from somebody that was ill-gotten, he said he paid back four times. That was her reputation. So he's talking to all these tax gatherers that are around him. And also sinners, sinners in general, drunkards and prostitutes and all these folks are surrounding him and they're coming to him and hearing his message of life. That he's come to give, you know, the thief comes to still kill and destroy, but I've come to give you life and I've come to give you more abundantly. They're hearing his teaching, you know, and they're blown away. And many of them are coming into the kingdom. In fact, Jesus says to the religious leaders that you travel, you know, land and sea to make one convert, you make them twice a child of hell, and you yourself aren't getting the kingdom and you're keeping other people out. The religious leaders were like, we're, we don't need Jesus. You know, we don't need religion. We've, we're the religious leaders. And he's saying, no, everybody's a sinner. Everybody needs to be forgiven. Everybody's going to need what he's going to do on the cross for them. Amen. But they were like so upset that he was reaching out to these sinners. And keep in mind, they had strict codes about how you could approach a sinner, someone that was apostate or backslidden or a Gentile or a foreigner. And he was, it even says here in verse 2, well, look at verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to what? Grumble. They're, ah, they're, all, they're talking amongst themselves. The Pharisees, that means in the Greek, the separate ones. They were a sect of strict Jewish leaders that sat in the seat of Moses and taught the Mosaic law. And the scribes as well taught the law. And they actually scribed. They actually copied the law and the parchment and so forth. They began to grumble saying, this man receives sinners. And he eats with them even. You know, he eats with them. It's like, he even eats with these guys. And they were so ticked off. And they weren't recognizing that which Jesus came to do as the Messiah was going to be. They were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. They were supposed to teach about the coming of the Messiah. Now the Messiah had come. He's doing all kinds of miracles at this point. But they say they don't want them to rule over them. They want their, their power structure even though they're under the Roman heel of power, they have a religious power structure and they don't want to recognize Jesus as Messiah and they're trying to find anything, any supposed dirt, quote unquote, they can on him. And here's Jesus showing compassion to lost people who are coming to the Messiah and they're turning it into something evil. So he gives them a, well, look at verse chapter 15, verse three. So, he told them this parable saying. So in response to what they're doing, he tells them this parable, which is actually three stories in one big parable. Gives them three illustrations, making up one big parable. And it's three different stories. And he talks about a man who had 100 sheep. We don't have time to go through that because I want to focus on the prodigal father. And I, I, if you just walked in, prodigal father, because he's context He's really the prodigal one as far as the one who lavishly spends his grace. Now, interesting. The first one, the first story within this parable is a man who has 100 sheep and he loses one. He goes and searches out that, for that sheep, amen? And that's a picture. And Jesus is saying, hey, he's going after the lost sheep. And then another one is a picture of his heart as well because he's showing what his ministry is about. A woman who loses a coin, and she gets on her hands and knees to find that coin. And she rejoices when she finds it and tells her neighbors, her friends, she rejoices so they can rejoice with her. And I think this is really powerful because Jesus' heart, the heart of God, is depicted by the heart of the shepherd that goes after that lost sheep and the heart of the woman who goes after that lost coin. 
which is interesting because in both cases, the one who lost something takes the initiative. And it's interesting because God took the initiative and left heaven to come after us, amen, and became a man. Super profound. But in the prodigal son, we read more about the responsibility of the sinner to recognize his need of repentance. And we also recognize, which is really highlighted the most here, I believe, the love and the compassion of the father. And you could call this story, you know, the waiting father, waiting for his son to come back, as some have called it. You can call it the prodigal son, as most have called it, or the lost son, as many have called it, or the lost sons, which I believe has even, gives you even more sight, insight. But I believe it's more than a waiting father. I believe it's more than a compassionate father. I believe it's a waiting, compassionate, prodigal father, incredibly gracious father. So I think the best title might be the prodigal father and his two lost sons. And let's read about this now in chapter 15, verse 11. And, he's, and Jesus said, he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Wow. Now, you guys, you have to understand the cultural background to really appreciate how bad this is. You have a son, when his father's still living, his feet are planted on the ground. Later on, the father runs, so he's in pretty good shape still. He's nowhere near dying. You understand? And the son comes and says, Father, I want the money that I would get in the inheritance. I want to take it early. And by the way, he's going to go into far country, far from the father. That is heavy duty, especially in those days. Because usually a son would wait around, his father would die. He would, he would want the father to be alive more than he'd want his wealth because family would matter more than material things. It would break his heart, but then he would be involved in God's plan and inheritance and able to carry on the family name, able to carry on the farm. Yet he could care less about the father, his brother, the farm, the village. He's gonna just take off. And you know what, it's interesting. He, he might as well have said, and this is how it would have been taken in those days, Father, I wish you were dead. I want your money. I want to make my own life without you. Even though it's the Father's money. You understand the cultural background is very, very important here. I have a book by a man named uh, Kenneth Bailey. And he's a scholar that lives out in that area in the Middle East where this happened. And he's lived there and his parents lived there. And uh, he's a, he's a pretty good, pretty good uh, scholar. And he talks about how he went into like, he's, he goes into the villages where they have many of the same customs they've had for a couple thousand years, you know. And he talks to them and he says, when he brings up the prodigal son story and he talks about the son who wanted the inheritance early. And he said, how would that go over in this village if a son did that to his father and wanted to just take off? And he said over and over and over and over again, consistently, they're appalled. What did you say? Or they can't believe it. They say that would be horrifying. That would be like saying you wish your father was dead. So understand 2,000 years ago in that culture, in that culture, it was, very, it was just very audacious, very callous, very unfeeling to say, dad, father. And by the way, it's kind of interesting when he says father, and you look at verse uh, 12, the younger of them said to his Father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. It's almost like a demand, isn't it? So he divided his wealth between them. He divides the wealth between the sons. And when he says father, it's not a term of endearment in this case. It's more like father, meaning I'm the son. You legally, that's legally my money. Yeah, when he dies, because he, you know, and he, and he can, by the way, give the inheritance out any way he wants. In Jewish culture, often the oldest son got two parts, a double portion, right? He only has two sons. We see this from the context as we read. So it's interesting when you think about what is going on here is he divides the wealth between the two. So what he does, he takes it, the assets, either, you know, a third of the farm or more and gives him those assets, whatever animals, whatever would be equivalent to a third of the value of the farm. Keep in mind how wicked this is too in this way. A lot of times, 
in those days, even in our country today, in our, in, around the world, you needed everything, every resource possible on your farm. Sometimes you barely made it. If you took a third of your riches off your farm, that could do you in and destroy you. So he's actually putting the farm in jeopardy in case there'd be a famine or anything else. They're losing a third. It could really upset things. In fact, there's going to be a famine later on in the story. Not with regard to his father's house, though. But it's interesting. So there's a lot of things going on here that would be felt very strongly. And it's not just that he was being rude and wanting the money. He was putting the farm in jeopardy. He was basically breaking his relationship with his father. He's going off into a far country. Okay, you understand there's a lot more at stake here. It's basically a slap in his father's face saying, I wish you were dead, but I could see you're going to be alive for many years, looks like, because he actually runs later in the story, as you see. And he takes off. So a, you have to understand how ugly this picture is. In fact... It's very interesting because when he leaves, if he wants to come back, it's going to be very, very hard to come back because he shamed his father and himself and his family before the entire village. And there is a village going on here because later on you're going to see a celebration. And there was an interesting practice called Kaziza. And for you guys who are taking notes or you guys are uh, wanting to understand deeper things that are going on in scriptures, Kaziza is referenced a few times in history among the Jews. And one of the practices they had in the ancient cultures was Kaziza. And that took place for two different reasons. If you were a young man and you married or got together with an immoral, evil woman. Or, number two, if you took your inheritance and you lost your inheritance among the Gentiles, which is exactly what's going to happen in this story. They would do kaziza to you. So if you came back to the village and you had got hooked up with an immoral woman, or if you had lost your inheritance among the Gentiles, and that would mean your father died even and you had inheritance. You might even had it legitimately and then boom, you come back and you lost it. Guess what they would do? They take you into the middle of the square, in the middle of the community, in the middle of the village, in the middle of the town, and they take a big pot, water pot, clay water pot, that they fill with burnt corn kernels and burnt nuts. And they, that would be filling this pot. They take it into the middle of town and they break it in front of everybody because corn and nuts are valuable. They would say, look at, and it was, and you're losing some precious things, but the, the symbol, this person wasted the riches that were given him among the Gentiles, the Goyim. And they would do this, and then they'd, guess what? Take you to the edge of the village and drive you out of the village, and you were not welcome back. And nobody could feed you, nobody could give you a drink, because you were considered a wasteful, uncaring person, and that you went among the Gentiles, rejecting God's law and doing your own thing. So guess what? Are you understanding the background here? This is serious stuff. So as this guy is prancing off with all his money, and by the way, he had the money because look at what happens in verse 13. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together. And the word gathered from the Greek means he, in fact, some of your translations might even say sold, okay, because it's a banking term. And what he did is he liquefied the assets that he got from his father and he turned it into cash, turned it into money so he could take off on his journey. He gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And we know it was a distant country because pretty soon he's going to be among the pigs. And the Jews weren't allowed to own pigs, not as a pet or for food. Okay? And there he, what? What did he do? Verse 13, he squandered, he wasted his estate with loose living. He wasted his estate with loose living. And you can imagine... He's going through a lot of money really fast. His older brother later accuses him of wasting the money on prostitutes and so forth. We don't know if his accusation is accurate, but that if he heard something or he surmised that that was what was going on, we can't be absolutely sure. But this term loose living, by the way, it doesn't have to mean uh, loose living in the sense of, of licentious living because it's basically, you know the word sozo, the word for saved? It's asozo, meaning the, the R, the A negates, you know, the sozo, the saving. So not saving in a very wasteful way. He spends all the money, okay? And so it's interesting. He's very wasteful at this point. 
He's squandering his estate with loose living. Verse 14. Now when he had spent everything, so all his money was gone. He spent everything. A severe famine, not just a famine, but a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be what? Impoverished. So now he has, he's out of, totally out of money, has no money. But of course, there's some people that, you know, he spent his money on and with, he joined himself with a person as well. But where are his friends when the chips are down? Do they care for him like his own father cared for him? No. That's what happens when you leave the Lord. You leave the faith. You end up around people that don't have the love of God. And they might be friendly to you while you're doing good. But they don't have the Holy Spirit. The love of God is not shed abroad in their hearts. And they might even show you affection for a time. But when there's a severe famine, the chips are down, there's nothing for anybody, it's going to be me, me, me first. If, he's, if his father's in a severe famine, guess what? He's still going to love him and take care of him, isn't he? So some pretty heavy things going on. It's a heavy picture that Jesus is drawing here. Verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into his fields to what? To feed the swine. Do you know what it would be like for a Jewish man to feed pigs? Pigs were considered unclean, right? You weren't allowed to eat pigs. It was against the law of Moses. The Jews abhorred pigs. Pigs were symbolic of evil and so forth. And here he is sent out and he's feeding pigs. Now pigs proliferate really well. They're one of the easiest things to go hunting for right here in California because they're everywhere. You know, they're in our mountains and our hills and uh, they're easy meat to get and so forth. They're easy to raise uh, bacon, pork chops, I mean, they're yummy too, right? You know, at least I'm not, a, I'm not as much with pork chops, but bacon after meat is really good, you know? So it's tempting, but the Jews were like, no. But guess what he's doing? He's feeding them. He's the source of their growth. And they're very unclean creatures, not just spiritually speaking under the law, but uh, literally. And God had certain laws where you couldn't touch certain animals because they also because they communicated a lot of diseases. And pigs were one of them. And we'll get into uh, biomedical pre-science another time in the future. I've, been, I've had a, some messages I've been waiting to preach on that, especially in light of COVID-19. Verse 16, and he would have gladly filled, now this is, look at this, and he would have, verse 16, and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. Wow. He's looking at the pods, these carob pods that the, the pigs are eating, and he was so hungry because it was such a severe famine and no one's giving him any food that he's like desiring to eat those carob pods, which taste terrible, okay? I don't know if they taste anything like the caribs here. We used to have a carob tree when I was a little kid growing up. And you get, you know, you chuck these like, you know, they were kind of like this shape, but they were kind of solid. And they had little seeds in them. And you would chuck them at each other. They could sting. And, but I bit into them a few times. And right when you bit in them, instantaneous cotton mouth. It was like such a gross, weird feeling. I don't know what these pods taste like, but I do know carob pods, which they would be eating in the Middle East, have very little nutrition for human beings, okay? Pigs eat a lot of things and they can get some nutrition out of them. But he's longing to eat the pods, verse 16, that the swine were eating. He wants to be a pig, okay? He, he wants to live like a pig. He wants to feed like a pig. He says he's so bad off that he's not only feeding pigs, he's fantasizing if he could get away with eating their food. That's what happens when you get far from God. The grass looks greener on the other side, but before you know it, it's not greener. And before you know it, you, you, you all of a sudden come under a form of discipline. And the Bible says as many as the Lord loves, right, those who are his children, he rebukes and he chastens, amen? That's in Hebrews chapter 12. That's also in Revelation chapter three. He rebukes and chastens those who he loves. So God is trying to get his attention the Bible says, hard is the way of the transgressor. And he, in Jeremiah chapter 2 and 3, you have this section of Scripture where it talks about the Lord had wooed them in the wilderness, but then it talks about their backslidings, and they committed two sins. They had forsaken the living water, the cistern of water. A cistern is a well, and God gives us living water, and he is our fountain. They have forsaken the fountain of living water, and they have hewn for themselves, dug for themselves cisterns, wells that cannot hold water, cracked wells. And that's what happens. The Lord is our fountain of living water. He was doing pretty good at his father's house, amen? 
but the enemy was dangling the carrot in front of him. No, look what you can have. And then he hewn for himself broken, a broken cistern and, way, and his money went right through the cracks along with the water, gone, impoverished, feeding pigs, unclean animals, wishing he could eat what the pigs were eating. And it says at the end of verse 16, and no one was giving anything to him. Tell the devil works, man. And no one was giving anything to him. Now, people can make one or two choices here. They could get their heart hard and get upset with their father. He should have given me more. Or he should have done this or that. Or blame someone else. The people, man, I was hanging out with. And there's a lot of people, I'm kidding, not kidding you right now. There's a lot of people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people on the streets that are filled with bitterness that are walking around talking to themselves. He's going to talk to himself in a minute. But he's going to say the right thing and get set on the right course. But they're talking to themselves and they're bitter at different people and they're angry. And there's mental hospitals filled with people throughout the world that become embittered with God, become embittered with other people because they're down and out and they realize they've made wrong choices, but they don't always realize they made the wrong choices. You know, becomes the victim mentality, you know. It's everybody else's fault. And what we need to do is turn to the Lord, amen. We need to go back to the Father. So, verse 17, thankfully he made the right choice. That's the choice. If you're backslidden right now, if you've gotten away from the Father, you need to make the right choice and start, stop blaming other people for the mistakes you've made. Because if you're not following the Father, that's your decision. No one makes that decision for you. Amen? Verse 17, but when he came to his senses, he came to his senses. Okay? And the context of this, of him coming to his senses, it's, in the, it's a very good context. He realized what he was doing was so wrong. What he was doing was sinful. He'll even talk about it being sin. So he's having a change of heart. He's having a, a change of mind. He's uh, involved in repentance here. The word repentance in the Greek is metanoia, okay? And metanoia means to have a change. And by the way, as Christians, we all have to make sure we, ha we aren't saved unless we've experienced metanoia. You know that. You haven't been saved unless you have experienced metanoia. And metanoia is the Greek word translated repentance. And it means to have a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of your will. Okay? And repentance is when you realize, in a biblical context, that you have sinned and that you're in rebellion to God. And you have godly sorrow. And the godly sorrow isn't repentance. But you have sorrow because of your sin. But the Bible says godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to life. So you have a godly sorrow because you're sorrowful that you've sinned against heaven. You've sinned against God. And you hurt because of it. Now the Bible in 2 Corinthians 7 contrasts godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. It says worldly sorrow leads to death. But godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to life. There's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. How many, when you were a child, you got in trouble and you were sorrowful and you even cried, but you weren't sorrowful because you hurt mom or dad's heart and you did something wrong. You were sorrowful because you got caught. Kid gets caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Mom comes in, hey, put that cookie away. We're about ready to dinner. You know, okay, you're not doing this tonight. And the kid starts crying, temper tantrum. He's so upset. Is he upset because he's, Hurt his mom's heart and broken a trust right there? Not if he's throwing a temper tantrum. He has worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow leads to death. A lot of the world has worldly sorrow. They're very sorrowful. They can't get more things that belong to other people. They can't get this. They can't get that. They can't do that. Or, or this thing didn't work out and that sin didn't work out. Godly sorrow says, man, I have offended God who made me, who gave me life. And I'm so sorry, God. Forgive me. Have mercy on me. And then it leads to repentance, which is, godly sorrow isn't repentance, but it leads to repentance. It leads to a change of will. Okay, I'm so sorrowful that I hurt your heart, God. I am I'm gonna turn from my rebellion against you. Turn, change of will, change of heart, change of mind. And then that's the repentance. The repentance of change of heart, change of mind, change of will, which leads to what? A change of action, direction. The direction, when you start turning now and you start doing the things that are that where you start seeking Jesus, that's the fruit of repentance. Repentance is actually a spiritual thing that takes place in the heart, but the activity 
is the fruit of that repentance. And none of, none of your, your repentance is not a work that you do. It's not a work that's meritorious. It's not a work that earns anything because it's connected to faith. We're saved by grace through what? We're saved by grace through what? Faith, not of ourselves, the gift of God, not of works as anyone should boast, amen? So some will say, oh wait, we're saved by faith, not through repentance. Mm. You cannot have true faith without repentance. You cannot have biblical repentance without faith. I'm talking about saving salvation faith. How do, we, how do we explain this best? Okay, Because this is what happens here. He has godly sorrow, which we're going to see. There's repentance going on here. Okay, uh, Some impugn his motives and say, oh, his motives are bad there. He's just hungry and so forth. No, read the context. It's very, very clear that he feels that he sinned against, you're going to see, not only against his father, but he, lists, he says he sinned against heaven. That's when he comes to his senses. He realizes he's a sinner and he needs to get right. Yeah, but he wants to be fed. Yeah, well, how many of you, when you repented and came to Jesus, wanted to get, get out of hell and want to go to heaven? Amen? Okay. When David was told that he was the bad guy with Bathsheba and that he was under God's judgment, of course he repented because he didn't want to be judged too, but he accepted God's salvation as well, and he was very, very grateful for it. Amen? So it's important to understand. Some will say, well, the Bible mentions faith without repentance sometimes. Yeah. The Bible mentions repentance a lot of times too without faith. Jesus said, preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Luke 24. It's part of the Great Commission, amen? And over and over again, we talk about repentance unto life. Jesus said, unless you repent, you all likewise perish, amen? Peter said, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, amen? So you have to repent so you don't perish. Well, how is repentance and faith connected? And we're only spending a few minutes on this, but I think it's important to understand this part of the story is repentance, and I've tried to explain it this way to you before. If you go to, keep your finger here in Luke 15 and go to Hebrews chapter six. Hebrews chapter six. He's telling these guys in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, to go forward and not have to relay the elementary things and go back to the beginning to keep going forward, not fall. So you have to re go through the things that you've been through in the past. And he says, therefore, verse one, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of what? Repentance from what? Repentance what? From dead works. Notice this repentance what? From. Repentance from dead works and what? Look at what it says here. Repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. Are you with me? Because there's a lot to learn in this message that'll blow you away. Repentance from dead works. You're leaving a life of dead works sin. Dead works of sin. Things that you're doing that are fruitless, that, that bring no benefit, that are actually destructive. Repentance from dead works and what? Faith toward God. You notice how repentance and faith go together there? You notice one is from and the other is what? Toward. Amen? Can I go, let's say this Father's Day, my family says, hey, let's go to Santa Barbara and enjoy the beach today, which we're not doing. But let's say they do that. Can I go to Santa Barbara without leaving Simi Valley? Yes or no? No. I have to go from Simi Valley to Santa Barbara. Amen? And if I'm going from somewhere, I'm also going what? To somewhere, right? So this is how repentance and faith work together, and they're two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Repentance describes the side of faith whereby you're turning from and moving toward. The faith describes the aspect of trusting in the object Christ. Amen? Are you with me? So that's why uh, if you say, well, we don't believe in repentance. Well, you really don't understand what it means to have faith because you can't trust Jesus unless you're turning from evil. Jesus talked about two roads, the broad road that leads where? To destruction, many people on that road. And the narrow road that leads to life, that few are on, amen? It, you cannot get on the narrow road unless you get off the what? The broad road that leads to destruction, amen? It's that simple, it's quite simple, amen? So repentance is key. And he experiences a desire to go back to his father, faith that his father will at least accept him on some level, hopefully, right? But turning from the lifestyle that he had chosen. All right, so now let's go back to Luke chapter 15. And he's been feeding swine and nobody's giving anything to him, but he comes to his senses in verse 17. And he said, how many of my father's hired men 
have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. So he realizes, man, at my father's house, the hired men, the men that he pays to work for him, which wouldn't be the slaves in this case, they'd be hired hands, they have more than enough to eat. Okay? Verse 18, I will get up and go to my father. And by the way, the uh, hired men there from the Greek word, that means craftsmen, right? I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. By the way, brothers and sisters, is he repentant and hurting because of his sin? Yes or no? Yeah, he says, I've, I'm, I will, I've, he's gonna go to his father and say, I've sinned against heaven, not just you, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. Wow. That's the first thing he's gonna say. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, number one. Number two, what else is he gonna say? Next, another statement that he's gonna make. He says, I am no longer what? Worthy to be called your son. That's the second declaration that he's going to make to his father. Number one, I've sinned against heaven and your sight. Number two, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. And yeah, not because he just lost all the wealth, but because of his behavior in the home, right? And because he wanted his father basically out of the picture and wanted his money, put the farm in jeopardy, could care less that it could hurt his father, and he just was going to do his own thing. I don't live my own life, you know? And didn't recognize that God was building something with him and his father and his brother that he wanted to do that was beautiful, but he was self-centered. He wanted to be about him. And he missed the big picture of what God wanted to do in his life. So he says, he's going to say, number one, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. Number two, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. But a third declaration he's planning on making. What's his third declaration? Make me as one of your hired men. Why do you think he's going to say, make me one of your hired men? Because he knows he's not worthy to be accepted as a son. But he also knows that his father's a good man. And he knows that his father may just hire him. And he may not have to go through Kadiza. Kaziza, okay? He may not have to go Kaziza where they take the pot and they break it in the middle and drive him out of the village because maybe the father will hire him and have some kind of arrangement. And if he hires him, maybe he can pay off what he wasted and save face, make it legally acceptable. This is really, really, really profound because of what comes up. Verse 20. So he got up and came to his father. That's the fruit of repentance, amen? Repentance, that change of heart, change of mind, change of will. But if it's real repentance in the heart, you're act active, you're, you're your activity, your works will follow that. Remember John the Baptist told the Pharisees, you know, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. The ax is already laid to the root of the tree there in Matthew chapter three. So he, and Paul said, do works in keeping with repentance. So you aren't saved because you go. You're saved by his grace when you decide to follow because of his grace and accepting his gift. But now the evidence is there that he's serious. It's not just a false profession. I'm going to say this. He's actually going and doing it, guys. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off. I love this. His father saw him. So I'll tell you what. His father sees him far away. A long way off, which shows you that his father was probably what? Looking for him. Okay? Waiting and looking and hoping that he would return, which is really profound. And it says, so, when he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, which is interesting too because it says his father saw him and felt what? Compassion for him. It's a good dad. He could say, you know what? I can't believe he brought shame upon me in front of the entire village. He mocked me. I've only been good to him, you know? And I want nothing to do with him. And some Jews will have a funeral for you. They could have had a funeral and said, he's dead to me. I want nothing to do with him. Oh, or he could say, oh, there he is. Can't believe there he is. Ooh, I'm gonna call some of my neighbors together. We're gonna grab him and we're gonna do the 
the, the, you know, Kaziza, you know, I'm going to take him in the middle of the square, man, and drive him out of town and break that pot and scatter the nuts and the burnt corn and look, show what he's done to us. No, he has compassion for him. Fathers, this is the kind of hearts we're to have toward our children. And ran, and he ran. Now that was not considered noble. In those days, if you were a person of authority, which this father was, had hired men, had all this going for him in the public's eyes, you didn't run in public. It was a custom, merry taboo. You didn't just take off running. Because you'd have these long robes, you'd have to hike up the robe, and you would only run if there was like an emergency or something. But he's running to his son, which for him it is an emergency, because he wants to make sure he gets to his son, he shows him his love. Maybe he doesn't want a few people to grab him and bring him to the Kaziza, you know? Or maybe he doesn't want his son to change his mind, or one of the friends to catch up and say, hey, I got this. So smoke some weed or something, or whatever, you know, not back in those days, but they had drugs back then. So he felt compassion for him, and he ran, and he embraced him. So his son is like, what's going to happen? And he's running to me, and he runs, and he embraces him, and he what? And he what? He kissed him. And the idea in the Greek isn't kissed him once. It's he continued to kiss him because he missed him so much. He loved him so much. He wanted to show his love for his son. It's very, very beautiful what's going on here. And by the way, the Pharisees, keep in mind, and the, and the scribes who are ticked off that Jesus is eating with the sinners, keep in mind how ticked off they are now. Because Jesus is saying, you know what? I'm not just eating with them. I'm looking for them from a far off distance. In fact, the father runs from his house from a, a far distance to get a hold of his son. That's a picture of Jesus who left where? Where, where was he? He left heaven, amen? And came for us. And he goes, you know what? I don't just spend time with them. I, I took off from where I used to be and where it was comfortable. And guess what? I'm not just eating with them. I'm embracing them. I'm kissing them and showing them how much I love them. That has to be infuriating them. But guess what? They were judging Jesus based on his low view of sin. Jesus didn't have a low view of sin, but they perceived it to be a weak view of sin. Doesn't he realize these are sinners, which you see in other texts as well. He realized who these are. If he knew what that woman was about, he, he would not let her put his, her hair on his feet and wash his feet with her tears. You know, we see that throughout scripture. But Jesus is showing he does not have a low view of sin. He has the perfect view of sin because he's God. He's the one that made the law against sin, which represents his holy character. Because guess what? He shows how ugly the son became and how wicked he became by drawing a picture of him doing that which was so outrageous, which was unheard of in the villages. Leaving his father and taking the inheritance when his father is still pretty ample and taking off and not being concerned about the father's future and being there for him, or the farm, or the history, or the village. And he shows him using it with loose living. And in the parable, he has a brother accusing him of being with prostitutes. He's saying, hey, this is really, really bad. Sin is really, really bad. Look what it did to him. It destroyed him almost until he came to his senses and repented. And you need to repent of sin. Jesus is showing this in the parable. And you're dead is going to be described later. My son was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. Sin causes spiritual death, okay? It's not this once saved, always saved thing where, oh yeah, he's sinning, but he's fine. He's going to go to heaven when he dies. No, Jesus takes sin very, very seriously as we ought to because he's pronounced dead spiritually. He's pronounced lost and so forth in the passage as we continue to read. So Jesus takes sin very seriously, but guess what he shows? God's grace triumphs over sin when there's repentance. Amen? God's grace is bigger than our sin. Paul says where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Amen? So when one is repentant of sin, God's grace and his Christ shed blood can wash away all sin. Amen? Are you with me? This is very, very heavy. What's going? There's a lot going on here. We think of the attitudes, the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the sinners, the tax gatherers, the story. It's, there's a lot of layers to it. In fact, there's so many things I can't even talk about. I thought, I'm looking at this parable, I'm like, man, I'd love to do like a four or five part teaching on this parable. I mean, there's things going on, like there's a, this mirrors a lot of what happened with Jacob and Esau. Jacob got one of his inheritance early. Just like this young man, he was kind of sneaky about it, and he took it, right? From the older brother. 
And he took off. Remember Jacob? And he went into a far country. Amen? And the older brother gets upset here. Well, Esau got ticked off. Esau wanted to kill him. Jesus takes a lot of elements and a lot of types and pictures and weaves them together that we don't have time to get into. Okay? And it's interesting, though, when Jacob is coming back, he became rich instead of poor, the opposite. And he sends a bunch of gifts ahead of time to appease his brother Esau. Well, guess what? This guy has no gifts to send, and his brother's going to be ticked off. There's a lot going on there, which you don't have time to get into. But uh, he's going back, and he has no way to allay their concerns of, of the older brother. Uh, he may not even be thinking much about it. He probably did because he's got this long journey he's on. And it's interesting. He comes to his father's house, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Then verse 21, the son said to him, now this is heavy, watch this. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Isn't that what he said he was going to say? That was the first thing he said he was going to say when he saw his father, right? Did he, did he do it? Yeah, says he said that. Because now he's back and now he's saying the very things he rehearsed in his mind. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned in your sight. What was the second thing he said he was going to say? I'm no longer worthy, worthy to be your son. Did he say that? Yeah, look at the next thing. I am no longer worthy to be called what? I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Isn't that something he said he would say as well? And he's saying it. What was the third thing he was going to say? Do you remember? I've sinned against heaven in your sight, number one. Number two, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Both true. The third thing he's going to say is a proposition. Hire me as one of your hired men because he wants to work for what he did. He wants to work it off. The law. Justice. He could never really work it off though because he's going to have to pay back everything he did and then he's going to have to sustain himself in the future. And guess what? Look at the text. Does he say the third thing? Yes or no? Does he say the third thing? Look at verse 21. Does he ever say the third thing? I'm gonna, I want you to hire me. No. Why? Because his father interrupts him and puts grace there instead of law. Woo! Check this out. Verse 22. But the father said to his slaves quickly, which gives me the understanding that the father's moving fast and as the son is talking, he cuts him off. Yeah, okay, you're repenting. You've sinned against heaven, against me. I see that. You've, you've, you're, you're sorry. You're no longer to be worthy, of my, worthy to be my son. You're right, you're not. And the father's affirming yeah, in his mind probably, yes. But before he says, hire me as one of your hired men, boom, we see the word but. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe. Say what? Bring out the best robe? Who would the best robe belong to in the house, do you think? Come on now. Who would, who would own the best robe of the house? The father. And guess where he'd wear that robe? Three times a year to the three major feasts of Israel. A festive robe. Bring out the best robe and put it on him. So you have these servants putting this beautiful, ornate robe that's used to go to the festivals on the stinky rags, that he, taking off these stinky rags. Can you imagine what his clothes were like? Of the, of the prodigal son, the lost son, pretty bad. He exchanges those rags for his father's robe. Come on, guys. What's the picture there? What does the Bible say that all of our spiritual clothes are like? They're as what? That's right. It says all of our good works, our 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 so-called righteousness is like filthy rags in God's sight. And by the way, in the Hebrew, that says you, as I've told you before, that's menstrual cloths. Same word. In other words, it's not God isn't like, wow, you guys are really awesome. No, he's like, whoo, you need to change your clothes. And then when Joshua, the high priest, is ministering before God, it says that Satan came to accuse him. And it talks about how his clothes were like excrement. And that word excrement there, I mean that word used, unclean, is the word for excrement, human waste, and vomit. Okay, That's what our good works are like before God. And guess what? We are given what the Bible calls the garments of what? Salvation by God. We exchange our old ugly garments for the garments of salvation. Paul said that I might not be found clothed in my own righteousness, but in the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Amen? 
So it's through faith in Christ and what Jesus did on the cross for our sins, his glorious resurrection, the Bible says that he became sin on our behalf, that we might be called the righteousness of God in him, or we might become him, the righteousness of God in him. Amen? So we're clothed. This is our story, by the way, guys. Bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand. In the Greek word for ring, there is a signet ring, which means a ring of authority whereby you would sign papers and documents. He's restoring him to a place of authority in his household and say, no, you're not worthy to be my son. That's right. But guess what? I'm making you my son again. And sandals for his feet. I'm going to have to move quick now. And I said, there's so much here. And sandals for his feet. By the way, the servants didn't wear sandals. You're a son. You get sandals. I wish I could say more about all these things. Verse 23. And bring the fattened calf. Kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. That was a prized possession on the land, right? The fatted ca- fattened calf. And kill and eat. They're going to celebrate. Just like there was rejoicing in heaven when what one sinner Jesus says comes to repentance earlier in when he was talking about the lost coin and lost sheep. Verse 24. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to what? Celebrate. Wow. They began to celebrate. He was dead, but now he's alive. Now, it's interesting here. Verse 25, the older brother is now in the picture. Now, his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. So he's like, what is going on? There's this music and dancing going on. And he may have even seen his father go to the younger brother. We don't know. But he might have put it together, like, what's going on? And he didn't want to go over there. He wants nothing to do with him, maybe. We don't know. We're not sure exactly how it, it, it panned out. But he sees, he hears the music and the dancing, and what's going on? Verse 26, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be, like what's going on? And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Now the brothers ticked off, verse 28, but he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But But he answered and he said to his father, look, For so many years, I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. Never neglected a command of yours? He's saying he was perfect, which can't be true. There's none perfect, no, not one. He goes, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. A goat's a lot cheaper animal. You never did this for me, but look what you're doing for for my younger brother who just wasted your inheritance. Because look what he says, verse 30. But when this son of yours, so impersonal, but when this son of yours came this is like the Pharisees. The younger brother represents the sinners that came back. The father in the story represents Jesus. Amen. Talking to the sinners who said, if you see me, you've seen the father. Amen. The older brother represents who? The lawyers and the scribes who are all judgmental and upset that Jesus is forgiving the sinners and the tax gatherers. And the older brother says, but this son of yours comes and, and who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes and you killed the fattened calf for him. Now keep in mind that fattened calf is the most prized possession on the farm. Besides the building itself, and guess what? That goes to who if the father dies? The older brother. Now we've seen some of his wealth go up and smoke in his mind. He's thinking he cares more about the cow than he does about his lost brother. Reminds me of Jonah and Nineveh, overlooking the Ninevites, caring more about wanting them judged than wanting them to be saved. We have to watch our attitude towards the lost, you guys. It's very easy to get in that, in that mindset. I look at what's going on in Chaz or chop, or whatever you want to call it. And I look at it like, wow, it's so backwards, it's so messed up, and you kind of get attitude. Look, they're in our country, they're saying, we're going to be our own country. Yeah, they want our, our resources. They're saying, we're against people getting IDs, but then they ID you. We're against border walls to protect the country, but the first thing they do is they put a wall around themselves. We're against guns, but they have guns. We're against dictatorships, we are too, but they have a guy they call the warlord, you know. And they're against violence, and they're beating people up, you know, to a pulp. One guy was almost died. It's like, look at you guys, man. So pathetic. And it's easy to write them off. And so I realized, wait, these are people for whom who Jesus died. These are, some of them are prodigals. We need to pray, not, not sidestep what they're doing. I just named a lot of things they're doing that are ridiculous. But we need to make sure our hearts don't get hardened and we pray for the lost and we go and witness to people like that and try to bring them into our Father's house. Amen? Verse 31. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. Why? Because the other son took his inheritance, wasted it, right? He's saying, look, you have the inheritance. If he abides with the father and his heart is right, but right now his heart's not right. He needs to make sure it gets right because he refuses to go into the banquet. 
He's just as lost as his brother was. Because all it takes is anything that can come between you and the Father. And his own self-righteousness, because I'm so righteous, I never broke a command. That's a lie. Can keep you from intimacy and knowing the Father. And by the way, his father says, but we had, verse 32, to celebrate. We had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has become, begun, begun to live. And he was lost and has been found. And by the way, it says earlier, he was found safe and sound. That comes from an interesting Greek word that's translated in the Old Testament in the Septuagint 14 times from one word, which is a Hebrew word that's translated in the Greek, shalom. He was found, he, he came back and we have shalom. The father was saying, me and your younger brother have peace now. That broken relationship has been healed and we had to celebrate because that's what really matters most, brothers and sisters, amen? Relationship with God, amen? And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter two, this guy that comes back after having sexual relations with his stepmom or father's wife, it says, comes back, some of the church was judging him. And he said, you need to confirm your love to him. You need to forgive him and comfort him. In other words, when someone comes back around, you need to extend love and not be self-righteous like the Pharisees. It relates to us as a fellowship too, that we need to have compassion on people that are making wrong decisions and pray for them, amen, and welcome people back when they come back to the fold. And we wanna make sure we're not like the older brother in this story, amen, because he had a lot of severe problems too, and he becomes a lost son in the midst of all this. And you know what? What's the last verse say regarding the story at the very end of the chapter? Does it say the older son made the decision to go back in and forgave his brother, forgave his father? Not that his father did anything wrong, but so he couldn't even really forgive his father. And by that's the way, this father did no sin in this. He's a picture of Jesus. So did he think, oh, I don't know if I'm going to go back in? Uh, it doesn't say. You know why it doesn't say? Because who's Jesus' audience? These scribes and Pharisees. They get to decide what they're going to do with the story. They're the older brother. This is as much about the older brother as it is about the younger brother. But ultimately, it's about the father. And you know what? That word right there that's used, and I just left my notes a long time ago on purpose because I knew I'd never get through my notes. But I have several scriptures uh, I wanted to share with you regarding the word compassion there. And I, don't, and I only say this about it. That word compassion and you can look it up on your own. I'll give you references if you're writing down. It's used of Jesus having compassion on lepers, people he healed, the multitudes he taught, the multitudes he fed, over and over again through the Gospels. That's the heart of the Father is in Jesus throughout the Gospels. Mark 141, Mark 14, 14, Matthew 9, 36, Matthew 18, 27, 20, 34, Luke 10, 33. It's Mark 14, 14, Matthew 18, 27, Matthew 20, 34, Luke 10, 33. And right here in verse 20, the father had compassion on him. And it's a very, very interesting Greek word, which I did a whole word study on, which we don't have time to get into, because it means to have, a, it, means to have it can be translated bowels of compassion. It has to do with your bowels, which were the seed of the emotions of the Jews. Even in our Western culture, oh, my heart, you fall in love. Oh, my heart, my stomach hurts. Or, you know, uh, especially you young people, you go through that experience. It's like, oh, are you you go through something really rough or you feel compassion for people, your gut. That's the word that's used, gut-wrenching or gut. It was just powerful word. Jesus experienced that over and over again. But you know what we're told as Christians in Colossians to put off the old man and to put on love and to put on bowels of compassion, same Greek word. In other words, we're, Jesus said, be perfect as your father in heaven was what? Perfect. We're supposed to be like this. This is instructive for all of us, male and female, husband, wife, child, and whoever you are, single people, we're all supposed to become more like Jesus. And this parable is ultimately about who God is and how he's a loving father. And I love that because he loves way more than we love. And this, I love this parable because it shows you how much the father loves you. If you ever doubted whether the father loves you, I always say, look to the cross. God became a man. And by the way, he left heaven and we read that he ran from the house to his son. But he didn't just do that for the first son. What did he do for the second son? He came out and went after him too. So whether you're a rebel and you've been in rebellion and you need to come back to God, or whether you're very religious and I keep God's moral law, but you're not born again, you need to be brought into the kingdom and brought into the heavenly sphere. In fact, Jesus said to Nicodemus, a very religious man, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Amen? So you have to be born again. 
That means you have to recognize that you're dead in your sins like the prodigal son was, that you're not going into the kingdom, that you're not going into the banqueting room. And if you're very religious, but you haven't been born again, you're not getting into the kingdom, not getting into the banqueting room, not getting into the celebration. And by the way, this has an eschatological dimension as well, because ultimately we're going to go to the wedding supper of the lamb. Amen. And we're going to be partying with Jesus forever. Believers, in Revelation twenty two seventeen, and the spirit and the bride say come. Let him who hears say come. And whosoever wills, let him come and take the water of life freely. We are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 11. Okay, Jesus is coming. We want to make sure our hearts are right. Whether you think you're religious or whether you have been immoral and living a wicked life, everyone needs to repent, bow the knee to Jesus, turn to him, come back to our heavenly father. And Jesus said, nobody comes to the father except through what? Me, I'm the way, the truth, life, no one comes to the Father through me. Because Jesus alone died for your sins on the cross. He alone paid for your salvation. He alone conquered the grave. He alone rose again and conquered death, amen? So if you come to him, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved, amen? So I want to encourage you right now, if you're a prodigal or you're religious, but you haven't been born again, come to Jesus and you'll be saved today, Amen? And if you're saying, no, I'm walking with Jesus, I love him, then continue to put on bowels of compassion, amen? Continue to feel for people and be careful in this time in history when the love of many is waxing cold that we don't become hard-hearted and cold religious Christians because there's a lot of religious, unquote, Christians who don't care for the lost and God wants us to care for the lost, amen? Are you with me? Did you get something out of this message? Can I preach? Can I stop now? Because I'm looking at the clock like, oh man, let's pray. Father God,